It's Monday, and that means it's time for the Religious Studies Project. I'm your host, Christopher Cotter. And um, he's actually David Robertson. And that's Christopher Cotter there. Now, you're also <laughs> going to hear Christopher Cotter in a minute. And he's interviewing Johannes Quack on the subject of Indian rationalism and a relational approach to non-religion. A lot of questions there. Can you unpack for me, Chris? Johannes can. It's an unfortunate fact that in popular Western imagination, the land of India is frequently orientalized and naively conceptualized as the quintessential land of religion, spirituality and miracles. Although we would certainly not want to completely invert this stereotype by substituting one unnuanced and inaccurate construct for another, what happens when we take a closer look at the constitu- at a constituency who challenge this narrative? those who identify as rationalists and engage in the criticism of religion in India. One scholar who has done just that is Johannes Kweck. In his book, Disenchanting India, Organised Rationalism and Criticism of Religion in India, published by Oxford in 2012. Johannes is Assistant Professor of Social Anthropology with a focus on religion at the University of Zurich in Switzerland, where he is Principal Investigator on the research project, The Diversity of Non-Religion. He's also the co-director of the Non-Religion and Secularity Research Network and has published articles and books in this area in German and in English with articles of particular relevance to today's interview being recently published in the Journal of Contemporary Religion, Method and Theory in the Study of Religion and Social Analysis. Today we'll be discussing Johannes' relational approach to non-religion before moving to concrete examples from his work in India. So first off, Johannes... Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thank you, Chris. Hello and welcome, everybody out there. <laughs> so yes, we're we're sitting here in Erfurt, eager to get to the uh, Congress barbecue. Um, so we're going to be very careful to stick to exactly um, half an hour for this interview. Um, so yes, thanks for joining us, Johannes. Um, first of all, um, I've mentioned there your re- relational approach to non-religion. Um, as, as uh, outlined in your Method and Theory article. Um, and I've found this particularly useful in my own work, but uh, for our listeners, you know, what, what is it? What, what's a relational approach to non-religion? What, why, is it, why is it necessary? What does it achieve? Yes. Um, well, uh, I've been asked uh, this question often, and it starts usually with the question, what is non-religion? What mm-hmm. do you understand what non-religion and I think this is a term with advantages and disadvantages. But what I mean by that, I use it as a descriptive term for a very heterogeneous set of religion-related ph- phenomena that are considered to be not religious. And this has uh, this understanding has several elements. And the first question I'm usually asked then is, what does it mean considered to be not religious? By whom? Mm-hmm. And I think there are two ways you can deal with it, in a, if you want to put it simply. One is you start with the definition of religion, and according to this definition, some people are not religious, but they are related to religion in a certain way, and then you can re- research this relationship. Or the other way is not you start with your own definition, but you look at those who consider themselves to be non-religious, and then you try to find out what they mean by that. Why do they declare themselves as non-religious or why are they described by others as such? And in my work and in our uh, 
research project, we took the latter approach. We looked at those who consider themselves to be non-religious and tried to figure out what they mean by that. And the relational approach, so the religion-related aspects mm -hmm. to it, I would say has two elements. One goes back to um, at least Colin Campbell and his work on irreligion. Those Basically, all the scholars who worked on irreligion, non-religion, and, and related issues, they have in some way a relational approach because they look at how atheists, secular humanists, or other groups or individuals respond to religion. That's also mm -hmm. how Colin Campbell looked at it. He looked particularly at hostility, but also at indifference. So this is a kind of a general understanding of relations on the empirical level. And in our research project, we try to systematize and, and differentiate between these different empirical relations. It's not only uh, hostility and indifference. There are things like making fun of, admiring religion, subverting religion, copying specific aspects. So there are all kinds of relationships. And we try to, to, to look particularly at these relationships and, and, and describe them and, and, and further, further with, with, with these empirical relationships. But the relational approach I'm, I'm um, developing has also a second level, drawing on Bourdieu and others, where the argument is more fundamental, where the, uh, as one uh, article is called, the real is relational. So this is a more epistemological, fundamental level, looking at, at uh, social theory and uh, opposing substantialist aspects in social theory where things easily get essentialized and, and there you look at religious, non-religious entanglements and relationships because, because one is co-constituted by the other mm. and you shouldn't think these as independent things out there. Mm. Yeah, because earlier you, know, you, you referred to indifference in, in your list there and someone's immediate reaction would be, well, someone who's not religious and indifferent to religion, well, you know, why, why are you defining them as, as non-religious? But that's something that the, the relational approach can, can deal with quite well. I would assume so, yes. We yes. just had a, a workshop on religious indifference and there will be a book coming out with Springer on the topic. And on the first side, you would say religious indifference is defined by not being related to, to religion and therefore not falling under the label of non-religion. Yeah, or, or, yeah, why, why is religious studies even looking at it? It's not, exactly. Yeah. And our approach, or at least uh, what we write in the introduction to this volume, is that on the one hand, this is true. But on the other, other hand, those considered to be indifferent to religion are often both challenged and represented by religious groups and by avowedly non-religious groups. So the atheists, for example, or the second humanists in Germany sometimes speak on behalf of one-third of the population because they say one-third of the population is not religious, including those indifferent. Mm -hmm. And um, the question is whether they... What is the basis of, of this kind of representation? Mm -hmm. But also the church speaks on those of indifference. So they kind of draw the people who are considered to be indifferent into the religious discourse and mm -hmm. thereby they are 
not directly, they don't position themselves with respect to religion, but they are positioned by others with respect to religion, and therefore we have to have a close look at that. Yeah, so it's that positioning aspect. Excellent. Um, I was going to ask how might we apply this in an empirical case, but we've, um, yeah, I think even just the idea of religious indifference has, has maybe given us an insight into that, but, but you're, um, well, the empirical work that's recounted in your disenchanting India was based in India. Um, we'll probably come back to the relational approach later, but you know, that's how we're understanding non-religion and how you approach it. But if you just, before we get in depth into India, if you just tell us about, you know, your particular research there, like the very basics, how did you, how did you end up researching in India? Um, what were your, what were you hoping to find out? Yes, um, that's actually an interesting story, and, and as often in anthropology, it's uh, more based on coincidence rather than on mm. a straightforward research plan that is simply executed. So my initial plan for my PhD was to research um, healing practices in a Hindu temple, and uh, so I prepared everything for that, and I went there, and in the initial stage, I came across people who said, these healing practices are harmful and superstitious and they should be eradicated and those people should put in, it should be put in jail. And um, I got curious where mm. these people come from and, and on what basis they make these claims. And then I realized they are part of an organized movement. They call themselves rationalists and there's not only one such group, there are several such groups all over India. And in fact, these groups have a long history reaching back to 19th century groups and so I realized that's that's an interesting topic. The, the other topic is interesting as well, but there was so little research on these rationalist groups, and in some parts of India they have been or still are quite influential. So I changed my topic and uh, did an ethnography of one such organization in Maharashtra in India. Mm. And um, just, uh, I haven't even ever asked you, have you, have you been back since for, for further follow-ups? Was this, was this during your... Yes, I've, I've been back. I mean, the research took place primarily in 2007, but also before and after. And I've been back to this, um, to, to Maharashtra, but also to India, to, to other places. And, and I looked at, at uh, organized rationalism. Um, there, w- there was a tragic inc- incident um, because the head of the organization I was working was murdered. And mm. it's not clear uh, why and how. Um, that all kinds of accusations made. He, he obviously was criticizing influential religious groups and the uh, Hindu nationalist uh, groups were were uh, not always in favor of what he said, but mm-hmm. so far it's not clear what, what uh, happened and uh, it looks like it will never be uncovered the, 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 who, who did it, but there, there are all things going on and, and I, I was following these developments um, mm. inside India as well as from, from Europe. Mm. Um, before we get on to discussing their particular, I'll say, mode of uh, unbelief or mode of non-religion, um, which is something that comes up in your book, but, um, it might be helpful for listeners, I guess, to, I'm going to ask you a very broad question, but if you could just describe the context within which your particular rationalist groups are, are operating, I mean, the Indian context, or that Maharashtra might be mm-hmm. quite alien to the listeners. So. Yes. 
Well, obviously, this is going to be difficult to summarize yeah. it in a few sentences. But um, first, I think one should know, um, as I also outlined in the book, there is a long history to these movements. On the one hand, they draw back to European Enlightenment and anti-religious secularist groups in, in Europe, as well as uh, people like Robert Ingersoll in, in the US, but specific, of course, Great Britain, um, 19th century Charles Bradlaugh and, and these figures. Um, but there's also um, a reference to traditions, pre-colonial Indian tradition, traditions like the Bhakti movement, and it even goes back further to early Uh, philosophical schools that, that are labeled materialists, uh, mm. Javaka and Lokayata. Um, so there are kind of two roots to these movements. And um, as organized groups, they, they, they first were formed in 19th century, end of 19th century, overlapping with anti-caste movements and other social reform movements. But then other aspects come in. Marxism came in, and so some of these movements got associated with Marxist ideology, others uh, connected to, to the so-called science movement, bringing science to the people, and um, others were primarily concerned with, with health issues. So there are different uh, historical aspects to different groups. The organization I was working on in Maharashtra, the, they call themselves Anashada Nirmulan Samiti, uh, the Organization for the Eradication of Superstition. They um, are not directly involved in party politics, so it's not mm. connected to Marxism or anything like this. And they have a double agenda. One is social reform, and uh, the other one is the criticism of um, practices they consider to be superstitious. And they do in all kinds of... They, do, they try to do this in all kinds of ways, by publications, by public lectures. But they also have two science vans, two vehicles with which they go to villages and schools and conduct programs with the attempt to spread scientific temper, as they mm -hmm. call it, uh, a notion that was also used by, by the first prime minister, Nehru, as well as to eradicate what they consider to be superstitious beliefs and practices. Mm. So that, the, having a science ban, sounds quite um, different if I was thinking of it in a UK context, you know, the go-to organization would be the British Humanist Association, for example. They're not driving around with a, a science van trying to, to educate. So I'm immediately thinking there's, there's something quite different about these contexts. Um, is there, what, what else is there about their particular way of being non-religious? Is it particularly Indian? Not that we want to generalize. Yes, <laughs> I mean, but you're yeah. right that the context is, is quite different in many respects. I mean, there are striking similarities that mm. yet have to be addressed. Uh, for example, that all such organizations I came across in historical work as well as in contemporary work in India, in Germany, in Switzerland, in the UK, in the US, wherever, 19th century, 20th century, 21st century, were all dominated by men. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be, for example, a, a striking similarity. But um, as I already mentioned, the, the connections to the anti-caste movement and the whole issue of, of caste in India, which is a complex issue, but is crucial for most of these movements. And that's the, the, the aspect of it, which they also always uh, emphasize, bringing social change and social justice um, is one aspect, especially especially connected to caste, that is, that is different. 
this different to, to other parts of the world. And a second major difference to other countries, if you take the UK or Germany or Switzerland, mm -hmm. is that with their positions, they, they are confronting and sometimes opposing the larger part of their society with respect to their beliefs and practices. So they are the odd ones out and they, they sometimes struggle and, and within families, some of the rationalists, they, they were not allowed to enter the, the house of their parents anymore because, because they rejected uh, the respective re religious beliefs and practices. Um, and so the, the setup of being a rationalist in, 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 in uh, India might be quite different than, than comparable groups in, in the UK or Germany. Yeah. And of course, you know, in, in that we don't, again, want to, to reify India as this mm. sort of particularly more religious or spiritual place, yes. but, you know, it's definitely a different context. Um, I know that um, I've read one of your uh, recent articles co-authored with Jacob Copeman on um, uh, the place of dead bodies in this context, and perhaps it might be um, just a useful, tangible example for the listeners to just focus on a particular material sort of instantiation of this mode of non-religiosity, if we could just sort of take us through how um, these groups might deal with. Yes. Yeah, Jacob Hockman from the University of Edinburgh uh, happened to work on, on the rationalist movement as well, yeah. and um, we realized this, and um, we... He's a great guy, so we decided to write an article together. And what was particularly striking to us is um, uh, how how important the donation of a dead body is for the rationalists in India, but not only for the rationalists, for lots of similar groups, like-minded groups in other parts of the world. Of course, there's body donation going on in all kinds of contexts, uh, yeah. religious, non-religious, and not related to religion, but the importance of this practice for these specific groups is quite striking. And so we particularly looked at the Indian examples we were researching, but we also compared it to uh, other uh, groups in, in primary Europe and the US. And um, we the, the argument we try to make is that this is a key instance of the material culture of rationalism. And we consider this to be important because as with religion, the materiality of religion was long time ignored and then there was whatever you want to call it, the material turn and yeah. the rest of it with respect to religion. But we also think um, the criticism of religion, rationalism and, and these uh, beliefs and practices have an, a material comp yeah. component. And, and for too long, they have, it, it, let's say atheism or has been conceptualized as an intellectual pursuit and you know, there's nothing material about it. Exactly. But, uh, exactly. And and so there the dead body comes in and um, the, we, we think it's so important for them because many things come together in, in the dead body and in dealing with death. Um, on first it's a key site for superstition. In in, in many religious practices mm -hmm. there's specific ways of, of dealing with, with death and, and uh, the bodily remains and the rationalists consider this, of course, to be superstitious practices, and so they want to address this issue. With respect to those 
who are part of these a member of, members of these movements and die, they can show the, that they are consistent and they that they can hold to their worldview even at the end mm. of life, where some might think that they will uh, return to to religious beliefs, and even after death. Um, The, 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 the idea of rationalism is, is uh, celebrated. And then probably the most important aspect is the challenge of that, that these groups are often challenged that they are immoral, that they have no basis to, to found their morality on. Mm. And with donating the body, they make the argument that we use this material for the good of the humans. While if you burn it or if you burial, bury it, then the material is lost. So then it's kind of showing the morality of, of their worldview. In this case, of course, opposed to, to how um, religious uh, uh, people deal with, with their mm. bodies. And, and that ties in. I, I remember from your book, you were also even like donating organs and, and things was also... Um, part of their the, the mode of non-religion you know, does that element of trying to show morality and, and trying to show societal worth does that you know extend beyond the, this particular practice yes and and also to foster science scientific development to mm. to give it to to the medical clinic and so that they can do experiments with the body because the body is i mean there's no soul so it's material you can use in 19th century German uh, free thinkers said we can use it as fert fertilizer for the fields. Uh, so whatever, I mean, make mm. it useful for for those who who remain on Earth, uh, and and in in some cases help science to 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 develop. Mm. Use it for scientific education. Mm. Um, so that you know, this is a whirlwind tour, and I can only encourage listeners to to seek out Johannes's work and we've still got an, another few minutes um i noticed you've been using the word rationalist here and, and i'm sure our listeners will have picked up on it um why rationalist why why aren't you why not non-religious why not atheist what's the uh, what, what does this tell us about those those terms um is there something specific here that you're using rationalist and There, this is, I think, um, straightforward anthropological practice. They call yeah. themselves rationalists, so I, I did not feel comfortable to choose other any other label to impose it on them. I'm, I'm not judging the rationality of one group over another group or whatever. They consider themselves to be rationalists, and um, within India, the different labels has been used. And there is mm -hmm. the atheist center in, in Andhra Pradesh, and they call themselves atheists and They're also free thinkers, but by and large, uh, rationalism is, is the is the word used for these kind of groups, and um, so I'm, mm. I'm just using it for that reason. And I, I, yeah, I. It's a longer discussion to to talk about atheism in the Indian context, mm. um, there which are, you have also written about in uh, the Oxford Handbook. Uh, Exactly, exactly. Yeah, there's the Oxford Handbook on Atheism, and I, I, I've written about that, and there's the Brill Encyclopedia on Hinduism, and they also uh, asked me to write a chapter on, on atheism and rationalism within Hinduism. And, and since this is uh, 
atheism obviously bases on theism and, and then you have to look at theism in, in the Hindu context and you should add the other religious traditions in India as mm -hmm. well. But in the, in the Hindu context, it's, it's very complicated. Um, mm -hmm. it's so difficult to distinguish between God, gods, demons, ghosts, and mm -hmm. deified natural forces and deified moral principles and human can become gods. They, can become God-man and gods can become human. And, and in fact, in some cases, the human is above the God. So the gods are dependent on humans to be fed, um, but also to reach moksha in some Hindu traditions. Um, you have to be human. The gods mm -hmm. are also part of the, of mm -hmm. the circle. And if you want to get out of it, you should be male and human. So the question is really, what is the relationship between human and God, gods and other supernatural or whatever you want to call it entities. Mm. And so it becomes really difficult to, to, to make these comparisons to, to the uh, Judeo Christian context. Yeah. So, you know, context is everything in that, in that context. Um, again, it's another big question, but you know, this is in depth work and, It's a very large book, and you've then published um, subsequently on it. But um, out with that context, you know, it, it, you are speaking to the broader academic debates on definitions of religion, on the study of non-religion, on we've just been discussing atheism there. So you know, if you had to, if you had to sell yourself um, and, and your work, not that we just want this to be a sales pitch. You know, what's the broader impact of, of this? very careful in-depth work on um, just how we in broader study of religion might understand religion, non-religion in these kind of categories. I, I would, I would differentiate between the ethnography, the book where um, the attempt is straightforward. The readers should in the end have some kind of understanding where these rationalists come mm -hmm. from, Absolutely. why they try to do what they try to do, and how the society reacts to what they are doing and how they are located in, in the Indian society. So I'm really happy if I managed oh, to yeah. bring this about within the ethnography. Um, when I was writing this book, I was not aware of all these debates about uh, religion and non-religion. Yeah. So that came later. Um, And I think it's particularly important, but I, um, I have difficulties, um, applying all of what I say about non-religion to India in a straightforward way, mm -hmm. which doesn't mean that, that it's not worth trying it because I think it's worth reflecting about the problems that occur. But, um, so I, that, that's why I try to differentiate a little bit about this ethnography of this group in India and my, like my, my article on the relational approach of non-religion. In general, speaking now on, on, on that part, I, I think it's particularly important to look at um, the religion-related phenomena that have not been researched adequately so far. I think if you want to understand religion in, in a very wide sense, yes. then then you should also look at those who are considered to be not religious and how they co-constitute whatever's mm -hmm. consi uh, considered to be religious. So there's, there are always uh, 
religious, non-religious entanglements and uh, the study of religion due to the name and due to the history and due to all kinds of other things focused usually on the center of the religious field. But you get a different perspective on the center of the religious field if you ask or if you look through the eyes uh, of those who are considered to be at the periphery or mm -hmm. we are even considered to be outside of the religious field, yet related to all the things that's going on. And I would add that this is not only uh, the rationalist, the, the secular humanist, or the atheist. This is also the secular and non-religious scientific study of religion mm -hmm. in quite different ways. They are related to religion, and they are entangled in all these processes. Uh -huh. So I think we have different non-religious agents. I don't want to con conflate. I don't, I'm not saying they're all the same. Oh, yes. It's a diversity of non-religion. But we have to look at all of these different positions related to religion in order to understand what we're talking about. Mm, absolutely. And, and I, I know I'm, I'm wary of this turning into a sort of sales pitch or a, and a, a mutual sort of reinforced argument. But you know, I, I have been accused in my own work of like, oh, you're, you're reifying the non-religious as a substantive phenomenon. And I, I always come back with, no, you know, we study this category is a contested category, religion. Mm -hmm. And by studying the things which are indeed on the periphery of that or outside of that, we can better understand the contestations. Mm -hmm. There's no thought of we are constructing non-religion for our own sort of cynical research purposes. And yes. And, and the aim is also not to draw a boundary between religion and non-religion. If the aim is not the opposite, but if I were to choose between one or the other, I would say the aim is the opposite. But mm -hmm. The aim is not the opposite in the sense that we are asking different questions. I mean, why are some people considered to be non-religious? And what does this mean to them? And what does this mean to those who are considered to be on the, side, on, on the other side? And how does this influence all the talking and experiencing and, and living religion and non-religion? Yeah, it's, it's studying that, that boundary. Mm. Um, so this is a sort of final point here. Um, You've already hinted at the value of this research and future directions and things that should be done. But you know, what's if you're happy to talk about it? What's what's next for you? Um, you know, you, you've done all this work thus far. Um, are are you continuing in this trajectory? What what are your plans? Well, yes, I I I think I'm continuing in this trajectory. I'm just shifted to Switzerland, so the, uh, yeah. I, I have to settle down and, and uh, get my head around the things that's going on there. But I will continue to work on India, and I will continue to work on, on those who consider themselves to be non-religious, also in India, uh, as well as in other countries. And um, I already shifted from those organized groups to individuals. Mm. And the diversity of non-religion is even more striking with respect to individuals. It's, they are harder to research because uh, obviously you can just, uh, they don't have a homepage where they say we are the non-religious rationalists. But uh, there are ways of researching it. And that's what I'm currently doing in India as well as in Germany and Switzerland. Perfect. Well, I'm thoroughly looking forward to the, the panel on Friday, uh, which is... Um, yourself chairing and some of your PhDs uh, presenting on the diversity of non-religion and yeah our listeners can 
definitely check out uh, those works that I've mentioned. And um, we've got a web page for your current project, isn't it? Nonreligion.net. Um, so if people are more interested in that, they can check it out. And just thanks very much, Johannes, for your time. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Well, better get to our barbecue. Then. Yes. <laughs> Let's go. Thanks so much for that interview, Johannes and Chris. And thanks to the IEHR. Um, where we recorded that interview and many of the interviews that we've been featuring and will continue to feature in the coming weeks. Although I will stress that that interview actually took place in Johannes's hotel, which was quite near the Congress before we went to the uh, Congress barbecue, which mm. was excellent. It was excellent. I spent the entirety of the barbecue speaking to Naomi Goldenberg, um, which was a lot of fun. She's she's quite the character and um, we're going to do an interview with her next time she's in Britain or the next time I'm in Ottawa Yeah, and after having a couple of um, beverages were you in a vestigial state? I think we were both uh, we were both in a liminal state yeah. um, from what to what I won't, uh, I won't bore you with um, the other group I'd like to thank of course though is the BASR our alma mater our, uh, our proud sponsors exactly thank you to them Yes, um, I say that was a, a thoroughly enjoyable interview with Johannes. I've been wanting to have him on um, the RSP since since the beginning, actually, um, but our paths hadn't crossed with enough time for us to actually get an interview in. So that's good. And um, I know that Ethan Quillen is writing the response to that interview, and um, I'm sure he, he will not be pulling any punches. Let's no. put it that way. Well, he's the atheism guy, exactly. So. Um, we look forward to a spirited, um, but nonetheless collegial uh, response Indeed. from Ethan. Indeed. Um, next week, um, it's an interview that you know a bit more about than I do. Um, it's um, been recorded by Sydney for us. Um, Sydney's a new interviewer. Maybe you could just let us know what's happening. So, yeah, Sydney Castillo is our, uh, our first interviewer based in South America, in uh, Peru, in fact. And um, his first interview is... Uh, with Louis Melones on the subject of demons, saints and heavens, Andean religious beliefs in Peru. Um, so we're very much looking forward to that. And um, I know that Sydney's got some more interviews lined up down the line. Hmm. And it'll, it'll tie in um, quite well with um, one of our previous interviews um, from the, the, the last block, which was on sort of... Um, um, what's the what's the period? I've, I've lost it. Um, my, Mayan. Oh, Mayan. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I should have had that interview to hand when I started opening my mouth there. But yes, mm. it ties in quite quite nicely, and I'm indeed. sure, indeed, um, Kevin probably has some opinions on that as well. Apart from that, we've got the usual Amazon links to flag out for you. .co.uk, .com, and .ca. I see a lot more people are using those now, and it's uh, it's making a big difference, so thanks to everyone. Absolutely, and do remember to check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Apart from that, I'm I'm getting ready to, to sign off here, you know. Um, I can't really be bothered talking anymore. Fair enough. Well, you know, thanks for listening.